Thanks, Danny. Uh, it's good to be with you this evening, everyone. I do want to extend uh, my thanks, even though he's not here, to Pastor Derek. It's been good to know Derek for many years now, and it's great to see the work that he's doing, not only here in Oxford, um, but around the UK and also, uh, it seems these days, around the world. So we do uh, praise God uh, for Derek. But if you have your copy of God's Word this evening, please turn uh, to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to consider some of the words in the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews. You know, often sermons, as you open up, your, open up the Word of God to Hebrews, think about this. Sermons are often designed to do many things, many positive things, inform people, proclaim people, teach to people, convict people, Comfort people. You heard that if you were here this morning from from Pastor Derek. He was very um, convicting in his sermon. He was proclaiming the gospel and he was also trying to comfort people with the word of God. Sermons do many positive things like that. Sometimes ministers do less positive things. They try and entertain people. They try and speculate in sermons. They try and charm people and they try and amuse people in their sermons. But there's one thing that very few sermons do, and that's try and persuade people. What do I mean by persuade? By persuading, I mean showing that there's a particular doctrine of truth that is generally worthy of our lives, that is generally worthy of our lives, and therefore it's better than any alternative out there. Few sermons do that. You know, persuading people is not just about telling people that something is true. That, that's part of what persuasion is about. But it's also convincing people that it is true and helping them see why it is worthy of their life. Preaching should help believers understand alternative doctrines, beliefs, and behaviors that they might be encountering and are not worthy of what they have embraced. And, you know, the perfect example we have of a persuasive approach to preaching is in the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is written to a people who are struggling with doubt. Now, I know some of you here this evening, many of you I don't know, so I don't know what's going on in everyone's minds. You know, some of us may be here tonight and we're doubting things. We're doubting things not only in the word of God, but we're doubting things about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But Hebrews is the perfect antidote to this because it's written in order to persuade us that Jesus Christ is superior to all other things, is superior to all other things. I want you to think about this because at the end of the book of Hebrews, we're going to be concentrating on chapter one and the first three verses in a minute, but the end of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, I know there's debate about this, but the author of the book of Hebrews ends Hebrews this way in in Hebrews 13, 22, and he says this, I beseech ye, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. So he says to the, to the people there, suffer the word of ex, ex, exhortation. That word in Greek literally means to persuade. And so the letter of Hebrews is basically a sermon that's written to persuade people. It's written to persuade people. You know, you he, hear this phrase, Another time, and this, this might give you an indication in, into the, who the author of Hebrews is, but we won't get into that. In, in, in um, Acts chapter 13, the word exhortation is used again when the apostle Paul 
is on his missionary journeys, and he's on the Sabbath day, and he's in um, Pisidia, in Antioch, and he's there in, in, in the synagogue, and the synagogue ruler asks him, Paul, do you have a, have a word for us? Do you have a word of exhortation? And what does the Apostle Paul do if you read that lengthy chapter? Well, he delves, he dives into the Old Testament, doesn't he? And he starts with Abraham, he starts with Moses, and he runs all the way through David and, and the promises that God made to his people. And he tries to persuade the Jewish people there in the synagogue in Antioch that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He gives a word of exhortation. He tries to persuade those people that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the fulfillment, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So that's what a persuasion is all about. It's trying to exhort people to understand something better. So who was the author of Hebrews trying to persuade? Well, it's not that difficult, right? It's in the title. Hebrews, Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus. But those Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus, many of them were beginning to doubt whether Christianity was right and they were thinking of returning to the old and former ways of Judaism. They were thinking about the animal sacrifices. They were thinking about worship at the temple, etc. If you read the book of Hebrews, that's what... The author brings up many of those themes. In fact, Hebrews still indicates that the second temple, if you know that big structure in in the first century, was still standing when the author was writing this letter because the author says in Hebrews 8.13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so we can see that, that the temple was probably still standing. So these people, the author is writing to in the first century, are having doubts. They're thinking of going back to their old ways because they're not really sure that Jesus Christ is superior to all things, which is why the author writes what he does. So the point the author of Hebrews is making is Jesus is superior to everything else that's possible you can put in its place, whether it's angels, whether it's prophets, whether it's Joshua, Moses, Aaron. All of these things are part of the old covenant. And according to the author of Hebrews, they were passing away. Now, I realize tonight, maybe no one here is thinking of going back to Judaism. Probably not. Okay. But there are other things that may be tempting us. We're thinking of going back to. You know, we might be thinking of work, study, family, money, or other belief systems are out there maybe trying to persuade us. And we might be tempted and thinking, you know what, this Christianity is just not working out. There's pressure from family. There's pressure at work. There's friends who hold other beliefs, and they're trying to persuade me that there's a better alternative to Christianity. You know, as I work, Francis, in Genesis, many many times I'll go to churches, and you will see an absence of a generation of people. It's the generation of young people. Why? Because they've been already captured through the government school system and been persuaded in their minds that there's something better, a naturalistic interpretation of the world. They've already been captured in their hearts and minds. They've already been captured to atheism. Now, let's just think about that because many people in our churches are thinking, I meet many people who have thought of going back to their old ways, thought of returning to atheism. You know, atheists often attack Christianity. They'll often attack the God of the Bible, saying he's the most immoral being out there. They'll want to bring up all those 
atrocities in the Old Testament, whether it's God judging people at the time of the flood or, you know, the, 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 the slaying of the Amalekites. And they'll try and bring up all those things to try and show you Christians just how immoral the God of the Bible truly is. But it's interesting. Many atheists don't think about the logical contradiction that they have to face with because one of the high priests of atheism, Richard Dawkins, famously said in one of his books, A River Out of Eden, he said this, the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now just think about that. There's, a, there's one of the high priests of atheism saying, look, the universe that we live in, is, it's not designed, there's no purpose to the universe and there's no evil and there's no good in the universe. Well, if there's no evil and good in the universe, how then can you turn around and say the God of the Bible is immoral? <laughs> that assumes a moral standard, but he's just said there's no such thing as evil and good. Now, he wrote that book somewhere in the 1990s. Now, if you remember back in the early 2000s, a few years later after he wrote this book, he went on to produce a documentary on Channel 4 called The Root of All Evil. And he was talking about Christianity. But how many people actually read his book and heard his words that there is no evil in, in the universe? So then why would you go on and make a program called The Root of All Evil? See, there's a contradiction there. Because if you're going to say there's some aspects of the world that are beautiful, such as butterflies or something, which most people would agree butterflies are beautiful. But then you're going to say some things are bad, such as diseases. Then you need a standard of goodness to judge between the goodness of the butterflies and the badness of the disease. But see, the thing is, atheism cannot account for morality because they believe in an amoral universe. If your worldview cannot account for morality, for objective morality, then you should reject it. See, many young people have just not thought these things through. Now, I was preaching two weeks ago in a, in a church. Derek often goes to in Northern Ireland. And at the end of one of the sessions, a, a young Christian girl uh, stood up and said, you know, about a lot of her friends are atheists. And, you know, they often question the, the, the accounts of the miracles in the Bible. So how do I... Um, challenge my atheist friends on how to accept miracles by not using the Bible. And I said to her, well, the very thing that you need to, to do is that you need to use the Bible because the Bible is the word of God, right? What does Hebrews 4.12 say? It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's living and active. Why would you put down God's word in any argument? Because as soon as you do that, you lose the argument. Right? But the Bible also tells us, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him, but answer a fool according to his folly. Right? So you need to think about the unbelieving worldview. You know, people struggle with miracles, but yet atheists recognize, actually, well, you've got a problem as well, because we talk about the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus. Well, atheists have to account for the virgin conception of the universe. Right? Where did the universe come from? How did the universe come into existence? What about the origin of life? In fact, there's a famous atheist out there um, who's, who's passed away now, but he, he wrote a famous paper on the, the origin of life. It was a man called George Walden. He said this, 
he's talking about the origin of life. One only has to wait. Time itself will perform the miracles. One only has to wait. Time itself will perform the miracles because he he knew the origin of life is not going to happen. And so what does he say? You have to have all this massive amount of time and time itself. Time will not perform any miracles, but he used the word miracles because he realized you need a miraculous event to cause the origin of life. See, don't be fooled into dropping the word of God when it comes to to this understanding of of the debate. So you wouldn't want to be fooled by atheism. Atheism is not worth going to. Is not worth going to. Now, I want you to look at the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews. We are going to get to these verses because we want to show you how and why Jesus is better. Because the author of Hebrews doesn't just say Jesus is better, but he proves Jesus is better. So we're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter one. And the author says this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, have in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, and by whom he also made the worlds, who be in the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, um, <clears throat> sorry, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to note two things, first of all. First things to note that the author of Hebrews tells us here. God has spoken finally to us by the, by the Lord Jesus. God has spoken finally to us by the Lord Jesus. Now, this is important because in our Western world, there are at least two kinds of views about God speaking. There are at least two kind of views about God speaking. The first sort of view tells us God has not spoken and you cannot know what God is like. That's atheism, agnosticism. They don't believe in God, obviously, therefore God has not spoken and therefore you cannot know what God is like. But we've already seen atheism is a self-contradictory worldview. The Bible tells us God has spoken and he's spoken finally through the Lord Jesus. And we can trust that revelation. So that's one view out there. God has not spoken and you cannot know what God is like. And then there's a popular view, which is probably the dominant view in our society, that God speaks through everything, right? That's probably the dominant view in Western society. God speaks through everything. He hasn't just spoken in his revelation in the Bible, but he's spoken through Islam, he's spoken through Mormonism, he's spoken through Jehovah's Witnesses, he's spoken through the Baha'i faith, he's spoken through all these different faiths. There's not just one God out there, there's many gods. But the Bible speaks against this. You know, God didn't speak through Muhammad, he didn't speak through Charles Taze Russell, and he certainly didn't speak through Joseph Smith. God has spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the author of Hebrews also tells us when and how God spoke. Notice what the text tells us. He spoke at sundry times. In other words, he spoke long ago in the Old Testament period. So when you think about this, the way God previously spoke was through the prophets, whether it be Moses, whether it be through Jeremiah, whether it be through Isaiah. The Old Testament was like a play without a final act. The Old Testament was like a play without the final act. You won't understand who Jesus is unless you realize he's here to fulfill earlier promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of all 
these uh, all these earlier prophet promises. Yes. Absolutely. God spoke in the Old Testament. He did. He spoke through Moses. He spoke through Jeremiah. He spoke through Elijah. He spoke through Isaiah. Right. But in these last days, the author of Hebrews tells us, he's spoken through the Lord Jesus. The, Jesus is the final act in that play. He comes right at the end. But you won't know that unless you know the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings. Now, if, you, if, you, if you've read those books, you'll know there's three books. And if you pick up the final book first, which is The Return of the King, you're going to have some questions in your mind, right? You're going to think, why is this little hobbit trying to make his way to Mordor to, to, to burn the ring in Mordor? You need to have understanding of the first two books in order to understand the third book. And this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things in the Old Testament. Often people call this progressive revelation, progressive revelation, and that God gives us more revelation through history. Now, this is not, God's not here talking about something that's less true going to something that's more true, but we're going through promise to fulfillment. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would deal a blow to the serpent, right? And then he promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him. And Jesus is the culmination of those promises. At the end of the book of Hebrews, the author states this. God, in, in, in a famous, sorry, not the end of the book, Hebrews chapter 11, the author states this. God, having provided something better for us that they would, without us, should not be made Perfect. You know, those promises have been fulfilled. The Christ to who the heroes of faith look forward to has come. All those heroes of faith that you read in Hebrews of chapter 11, they were all looking forward to the coming man of promise, the coming Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is making that point. He has come. And if he has come, why would you want to go back? There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to go back to. God has spoken finally and decisively through Jesus. Jesus is the final word of God. And if Jesus is the final word of God, as as the author of Hebrews states, well, Muhammad was a false prophet. Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Charles Taze Russell was a false prophet. Ellen G. White was a false prophet. Because God spoke finally through the Lord Jesus. Don't be deceived by those people. God has spoken finally through the Lord Jesus. But notice as well, the author of Hebrews also tells us this, when God has spoken. He tells us he's spoken in the last days, in these last days. Now, we're not going to get into eschatology, but notice the author of Hebrews writing in the first century tells us in these last days. The last days are not about the quantity of time. In other words, how much time there is, but it's about the quality of time. So it's not about the quantity of time. It's about the quality of time. We live in a time when God has fully revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. So don't think about the last days of just this period of the end of history. The author of the book of Hebrews says he was living in the last days. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he talked about this is the last days. The last days started when Jesus Christ came into the world, and it will end when he returns. 
God has spoken in these last days. We live in a privileged time. We live in a privileged time. It's a time when the gospel goes out to all of the world. This is why Derek is going to Holland. This is why he goes all around the world. This is why we travel all around the world. Because we live in a privileged time. It's a time when we take the gospel to the nations and we await the return of Jesus. You know, think about it like this. We are not on a cruise ship. We are not on a cruise ship. We are on a battleship. You know, many Christians live their lives as if they're on a cruise ship. They're traveling from here to the Bahamas and they just want to take it easy. But the Bible doesn't give that impression about our Christian lives. We are not on a cruise ship. We are on a battleship. It's like the war going on in Ukraine. There's a battle going on. But God tells us there's a battle going on in this world, a spiritual battle. And we are to live our lives as if that battle is real. We're on a battleship. We're not on a cruise ship. So if you're thinking tonight, I'm just going to take my Christian life easy. No, that's not what the Christian life is about. We are not on a cruise ship. We are on a battleship. We need to be reminded that in these last days, it's our duties as Christians to preach the gospel to all nations. But the second thing I want you to know, we're told four things about Jesus which bring out his superiority. There are four things that the author tells us that bring out his superiority. Notice, first of all, he talks about Jesus, the Son, as the one by whom he made the worlds, by whom he made the worlds. There's no more direct way of saying Jesus is God than to say he is creator, right? That ends the debate over whether Jesus is God. The author of Hebrews has settled that for us there, as as the apostle John did, as did Jesus, as we talked about yesterday. There's no more direct way to say Jesus is God by telling you that he is the creator of all things. It was through the Son that God made the universe. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews 11, chapter 3, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And you just think, how did God create the world in Genesis? He spoke, right? He spoke the world into existence. God is a speaking God. He communicates to it. He spoke the universe into existence. He's a God who reveals himself to us. He's a God who speaks to us because he didn't just speak the universe into existence and, and, and leave us there. What did he do? He created man in his image and he spoke to man in the garden. He's a God who communicates to his people. The gods of the nations are silent. They do not communicate to their people. If you read the Old Testament and you read the prophet Isaiah, he tells you as much. Their gods did not communicate to their people. The God, the one true God who made the world has spoken to us and he's spoken to us finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a God who communicated to Adam in the garden. He's not silent. He's not a silent God. He speaks to us in his word. But we need to realize this. This is the most important thing. He is a God who speaks to us, and he's spoken to us finally through the Lord Jesus, but he has finished speaking to us in the Lord Jesus. He has finished. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it in the past tense. He has spoken to us. Revelation stopped with the coming of the Lord Jesus. There is no more revelation to come. No more. Someone once said this, if you want to hear God speak, 
read his word. If you want to hear God speak, read his word. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud, right? Everyone wants to hear from God. Well, if you want to hear from God, open up this book and start to read it. And if you want to hear him audibly, then just read it out loud. You don't have to look for dreams and visions. God has spoken finally and decisively through the Lord Jesus. But notice what the author of Hebrews also tells us. He tells us that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. So not only um, did Jesus create the world by his word, but he also holds the world together by his word. He's not just the God who creates. He's a God who sustains. This is why Paul in Colossians 1.17 tells us this. By him, that's Jesus, all things consist, or in him all things hold together. Now, this is another important point that we often miss because, you know, when we think about the world around us, when we think about the laws of nature, for example, they are not impersonal, mechanical creations of God. Rather, they are descriptions of the logical and orderly way that God upholds the universe. Natural laws are not alternative to God's power, right? They are God's power. Natural laws, the law of gravity, for example, you know, if I throw this key up, what's going to happen? It's going to go up and down. And if I pick it up again and drop it down, that's the way God upholds the universe. God ordains the means as well as the end. And God can suspend those laws of nature if he chooses to, right? He did it through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus turns water into wine. How do you go from water to wine? unless it's supernatural. But think about this. If you're, if you're thinking, well, maybe atheism is a better alternative. But if the universe is random chance, if everything is just random chance, why would it obey laws, right? If everything's just evolving and the universe is random chance, why do you even have laws of gravity? Why do you have laws of nature that work? Because I can pick this up and I can drop it again, and I could come back here tomorrow and preach tomorrow night, and if I pick it up and drop it again, it'll fall to the floor. But if you're living in an ever-evolving world, how would you know if you came back tomorrow night and dropped it, it wouldn't go up? God upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We can trust in God to sustain this. And that's important because you live in a world where many people are panicked about the future. Many people are panicked about the future because they think a cataclysm is coming because man-made CO2 is going to destroy the planet. But what did God tell us after he destroyed this planet through the flood? He made a promise. He made a promise through Noah, didn't he, that he would never destroy the planet again through a flood But as long as the seasons remain, as long as day and night remain, cold and heat, summer and winter, the earth will go on. God sustains this planet. He's not distanced from us. He's active in his creation. That's why as Christians, we don't need to be panicked about the future of the universe because the author of Hebrews tells us Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ upholds the universe by the world of his power. Notice the second thing that the author of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus is a prophet because what do prophets do? 
prophets speak. And he's spoken to us through his son. Now, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, Jesus came as a prophet to reveal God to us. Jesus came as a prophet to, re- to reveal God to us. And who better to reveal God the Father than God the Son? You know, you read those famous words in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then you read in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, or he has explained him. So the word that was in the beginning with God is obviously Jesus. And then John 1.18 tells us that no one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten son who's in the bosom of his father, he has explained him to us. That's why Jesus is the word we need to listen to, because he was eternally existent with the father. Who better to explain the father to us than the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, this is why you read in John's gospel when Jesus is coming towards the end of his ministry and you read in John chapter 14, verses 8 to 9, after he's told his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for him and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, Philip turns around and says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, have I been with you so long and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He have seen me, has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, many people make the mistake, many heretical groups make the mistake of saying, well, that shows you that Jesus is the Father. Well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying because John's gospel makes that clear. But Jesus is showing Philip, look, if you want to know what the Father looks like, just look at what I've been doing. I'm revealing the Father to you. So how can you tell me, how can you say to me, show me the Father? Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. Jesus is not just a greater revelation of God. Again, he's the final revelation of God. There is no other revelation to look for. He is the prophet who has spoken to us finally. But then thirdly, look at what he tells us about the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is a priest. He's a priest to us because the author of Hebrews tells us this, when he had himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, think about what do priests do in the Old Testament? The priest was just like a butcher, don't, for young people today, we don't have butchers. But when I was growing up and I would go to my grandmother's house, she would often take us to the butchers and the butcher would stand there with a big um, cleaver in his hand and he would just slice the meat and the blood would be flying everywhere and he was covered in blood. That's what a priest would do in the Old Testament. He was basically a butcher. He would kill the animals. Blood would be everywhere. They made sacrifices for people. That was the role of priest. But Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice for sin. And here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the job of a priest was never done. The job of a priest continued. The Old Testament priesthood, they never sat down. They never sat down. But think about what the author of Hebrews tells us 
in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, he says this, and every priest standeth daily. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Those Old Testament priests continued to make sacrifices. They never sat down. But the author of Hebrews tells us that after giving his life as a ransom for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. This is why he cried out on the cross. It is finished. Mission accomplished. No more sacrifices for sins. Jesus is the priest who has accomplished a perfect work of cleansing his people's sin. Now think about this, because there are people, a lot of Christians today, who have gone back to Roman Catholicism. I meet them a lot of the time. And they're persuaded to go back to Roman Catholicism. But the Roman Catholic teaching have a teaching on purgatory, that your sins are not finally cleansed in this life, but they're going to be purged in purgatory. That's what purgatory is all about. It's a purging of your sins. But that contradicts what the author of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus has sacrificed himself once for all for sins, and he has sat down. So why would you want to go back to Roman Catholicism? Jesus is our priest who has given himself for our sin, and he's made that work, and he's finished, and he's completed it. So there's no point in going back to Roman Catholicism. But finally, notice this, that Jesus is our king, because it tells us this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, when you think about what a king does, what does a king do? Kings rule and reign. Kings rule and reign. But you know, the problem, as Derek was explaining this morning, is that people are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they're enemies of God. And when you're an enemy of God, as we read In Luke 19, 14, when Jesus tells us of the parable of the 10 minutes, he says this, in the parable, we will not have this man reign over us. That was the cry of the religious leaders. We will not have this man reign over us. And because people are dead and of trespasses and sins, they do not want the Lord Jesus to reign over them. That's why we take the gospel to the nations, because the gospel of Jesus Christ makes dead sinners alive. But we need Jesus to reign and rule over us. We need him to reign and rule over us. You think about Jesus as the king whom we have offended. We have offended the king through our sin, who are in rebellion against him. Yet he became a man to give his life for sinners. You will not get that contrast until you first realized He is the king because think about this. What king dies for people? What king dies for people? You have a dictator who acts like a king in Russia at the moment. He's not dying for people. He's trying to slaughter people. What king dies for a person? Jesus did. Kings don't save their enemies. Kings normally destroy their enemies. But this king the Lord Jesus Christ, died for his enemies. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. That's why 
There's nothing to go back to. That's why there's nothing to go back to, because of who Jesus is. So as we sum this up, as we think about this and bring it to a close, Jesus is greater than anything you can come up with that tempts you to stop following him. Jesus is greater than anything. If you're being tempted tonight by thinking there's something better to go on to, atheism, Roman Catholicism, Islam, or some other religious teaching, or or the pressure from your family, well, Jesus is better than all that. Jesus is better than all that. Nothing should tempt you away from following him. He's the prophet who has spoken finally to us in the word of God. He's the priest who has accomplished a perfect work of purifying our sins. And he's the king who rules and reigns over us. There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to go back to. And I pray that everyone tonight will know the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. And you will know that he has finished the work of salvation and that he holds his people fast. He will not let you go. You may be tempted to go back to other things, but no, there is nothing better to go back to because Jesus is better than everything else. And that's the point of the book of Hebrews. That's the point he makes. Jesus is better than everything else. Let me pray. Close in a word of prayer then. I'm going to hand it over to Danny, and Danny's going to lead us in the last hymn. Lord, God, we do thank you for sending the Lord Jesus into this world. We thank you that he is our prophet, he's our priest, and our king. Lord, he's the one who created the world, and he rules us, and he sustains us, Lord. And I thank you for the salvation that has come in him, Lord, that he has cleansed us from our sin. If we are trusting in him, Lord, that we don't have to continue working, Lord, for that forgiveness, but it's complete and it's final in him and that he will never let us go. Lord, I pray for those who are here tonight. Lord, if there are those who are questioning whether they truly know you or whether they're thinking about going to something else, I pray that they will know that Jesus is far much better than anything else in this world, Lord, and that they will truly be repentant and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that we will go in your grace tonight as we leave this place. But Lord, as we go, help us to realize that we're not living a life that's meant to live on a cruise ship, but Lord, that we are in a battle, a spiritual battle, Lord, and you have given us the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to win souls to you. And I pray that we will be emboldened as we go from this place in this week, Lord, that we would share the good news of Jesus with others. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.